Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number six in the Book of Lost Tales, part two. Uh, so, we are going to talk about the fall of Gondolin today, the actual fall, that is, of the city. We've talked about the story uh, since last week. Um, but first, as always, announcements. Um, as I... Uh, suggested, or perhaps hoped, last week uh, we have officially opened enrollment for our uh, for our summer classes. Um, the classes that I mentioned uh, before, I'm teaching my class on Tolkien's poetry, uh, and uh, uh, and Dr. Sturgis is teaching her class on H.P. Lovecraft. Both both of them brand new classes that we've never offered before at Mythgard, uh, and I'm really excited about them. So make sure to go check those out on Mythgard.org. Uh, you should be able to find information on those. Uh, I've included, I, I sort of hesitated to do it because it makes the page really, really long, but I actually have included all the poems that I'm hoping to talk about over the course of the semester so you can see um, the whole run of, uh, of, of poems that I'm planning to do. Um, it's a lot, um, but it's, it's going to be so much fun. I am so looking forward to doing You know, I mean, as many of you have known for a long time, uh, you know, I, I love talking about the poems. Uh, it was always my favorite part of my Hobbit book, for instance, when I got a chance to, to uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the, uh, to, you know, to do some close reading of the poetry. Um, it'll be really fun to look at that poetry again, actually, in the context of Tolkien's larger poetic kind of trajectory. Um, but uh, but anyway, I, there have been a bunch of times when I've been wanting to, even in these classes, um, those of you, some of you will remember last semester, for instance, uh, my disappointment that in our discussions last term, I didn't get around, I never did get around uh, to talking about the Tin Fang Warble poems, uh, but, which I really wanted to do. Um, but uh, doggone it, we're going to talk about the Tin Fang Warble poems uh, in my summer class this term. So, uh, so I've been wanting to do this. Just like let's let's just talk about the poetry and nothing but the poetry. I've been wanting to do this for a really long time, so I'm very excited about this. Um, so, okay, so that's what's happening coming up soon. And H.P. Lovecraft, uh, and uh, uh, what we have had—that's been one of the most requested classes. We had a bunch of people who've been lobbying for a class on Lovecraft for a while, uh, and certainly Lovecraft's position in uh, uh, in sort of the history of 20th century fantasy um, is almost as profound as Tolkien's. It's it's uh, uh, he's I think one of the one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, and uh, so it, that will be uh, that will be a really a really cool opportunity too. Um, my other announcement is, uh, uh, is is something directly related to the Mythgard Academy and to something we talked about during our fundraiser this past fall. You guys will remember that we talked about doing a special guest lecture series, um, which uh, which you guys funded through your generosity uh, in our campaign, and we have our first lecture session, uh, first guest lecture session happening this coming Monday. So Monday night of next week, uh, Mike Drought is going to be giving a talk, uh, and uh, his talk is going to be awesome. Basically, what Mike Drought has been doing, many of you know who uh, Mike Drought is. He's one. He, he's, he's a fantastic uh, Tolkien scholar and also a very accomplished Anglo-Saxonist. And what he's been doing is uh, he and his, his team uh, have been doing this really interesting computer analysis of Anglo-Saxon word usage. Um, so it's basically a way to, to sort of use analysis 
in some ways, kind of like, uh, you know, in modern data analysis, um, to sort of look at patterns in, uh, in linguistic usage in Anglo-Saxon. Um, and so he's going to be, comp in his talk, he's going to talk about, on the one hand, the kinds of conclusions that they have come to uh, in doing their analysis of Beowulf uh, through this, uh, this linguistic procedure, uh, which he calls lexomics, um, and he's, he's going to be comparing that to the interpretation that Tolkien did of Beowulf, um, and sort of looking at where, you know, the old professor and the new computers have sort of, uh, uh, ha have sort of come, um, and relating those two together. It's going to be a really, really fascinating talk, both a really, really neat insight into some, some really cool, um, digital humanity stuff that he's working on, um, but also a really, uh, a really uh, interesting way to look back also at Tolkien's own understanding and thoughts about Anglo-Saxon. Um, so, I, you know, I, Mike is a fantastic teacher and a wonderful lecturer, uh, so I strongly encourage everyone. These, of course, are, are, are these lectures are open. Um, they're going to be recorded and posted to the, uh, to the Mythgard uh, Academy podcast uh, it, you know, feed, just like the uh, class sessions are. Um, but anyway, I, I, I strongly recommend that you attend uh, if you can. That's going to be on Monday night. Um, you can uh, you can you can find it um, if you go to MythGuard.org in the Academy tab. There's a page for the guest lecture series, and you can find the registration link there. Um, I uh, I strongly recommend that you uh, that you look that up. I will uh, I'll, I'll post it for those of you who want who are present with me and can uh, uh, can just copy the link. Um, there it is, um, but um, anyway, he's uh, he's uh, he, uh, Mike is just a just a wonderful lecturer. I think this is going to be great. So, wanted to make sure that you guys all know that that's that that's going on and coming up soon. Now, on to the fall of Gondolin because we've got a lot to talk about tonight. I have uh, I have more slides to try to get through tonight than I've ever attempted yet in this class. So uh, we'll see. How well I do. So I'm going to start off in my traditional way, which is talking about a bunch of other things before I get to slide one. But the first thing I wanted to mention uh, is my the the title I gave to tonight's lecture, "Lighter and More Happy Things." And I have to admit this that was kind of a joke on my part. But I, I just when I was rereading this, I reread the story again this week before class, and uh, and and I was just really struck by something that I ne had never really noticed before. Um, which is in the introduction again at the very beginning when 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 Eltas the the the, the speaker is talking, um, they ask him to tell the tale of the Nauglifring, and he's like no 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 that's a, that's a really sad story let's not let's not tell that and he says instead he says that story must wait a while, and other stories of lighter and more happy things I have to tell if you would leave or listen to them, uh, and, and you know he goes on to suggest you know to talk about Baron Ermabwit and and uh, and the coming of Arendel, um, and I am um, I am thinking that um, uh, I mean he's I mean I take this. Uh, to sort of suggest that he's he's thinking of this of this story of the fall of Gondolin as one of the lighter and more happy. Th I might be misreading this. I, you know, there I think there are a couple ways that you can read that that whole passage. But it seems when he talks about that that his emphasis is on the coming of Arendel, right? Because the coming of Arendel is a, is a, is is well <laughs> lighter literally, right? Uh, radiant, right? Shining, um, but 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 more happy and. 
to me, it was just, it sort of ties back into what I was talking about last time, about the, the sort of remarkably uh, messianic significance that Arendel seems to have in this early conception, um, because there is the sense in which, yes, the fall of Gondolin is sad, we're not trying to pretend that it's not sad and everything, but um, the fact that it is the first chapter in the story of the coming of Arendel is like the, 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 the happiness and joy of the coming of Arendel um, it doesn't. It's not that it outweighs the sorrow exactly, but that you know, it's like I don't know. The sorrow was good to have been. I'm not quite sure, but um, but certainly, again, in his mind, he doesn't have this classified. This story that we're reading here, he doesn't have this classified as like among the most sorrowful and grievous of all tales. Instead, it's in the category of lighter and more happy things because it's in the Arendel category. Um, and Nancy, I agree. Certainly, when you're when you're coming off the story of Turambar. Uh, you know your your standards have changed uh, as for when it comes to lighter and and, and more happy. I totally totally agree with that. Um, but uh, but anyway, I, I I just to me the way in which this story is seems clearly to be a kind of a that is the story of the fall of Gondolin seems to be by way of a kind of preamble to uh, the coming to the story of Arendel. Um I think that that's uh, that's significant. You know, I mean, I, that that seems to me a really important kind of piece of context. Um, again, if I'm understanding that right. Um, anyway, so that just wanted to explain my title and not just that I'm being merely flippant. Um, one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we uh, start in uh, on the discussion I promised last time, um, and that is uh, some clarifications. I want to go back. I've been feeling guilty, like I kind of muddied things a little bit last time when I was talking about the dating of this manuscript and its relative age compared to the rest. I don't want to give misimpressions, and I, I've been, my, my conscience has been smiting me over the course of this week that I, that I feel I might have given some misimpressions. Two things to clarify. First, um, the manuscript that of the Fall of Gondolin that was included here, remember we, we talked a little bit about how we have the first penciled manuscript then the fair copy typescript that was made by by by, by Edith Tolkien's wife, um, and then which is you know so the manuscript was called Tour A by Christopher, uh, the the typescript was called Chris, uh, Tour C by Christopher, and then uh, Christopher talks about the sort of the later revisions and clarifications that Tolkien made when he was uh, you know sort of polishing it up to read it at the essay the 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 the, the essay club. Um, at Exeter College in 1920. So, and, and and then remember, Christopher said it's that later version. It's the cleaned up, polished thing that he read at the at the essay club that Christopher is publishing. That's what he says. This um, um, this this where this text come from, comes from. However, um, so the thing I want to clarify is the penciled manuscript that this was based on. We've talked about how this is this seems to be the you know the, the earliest story that we get. But I don't want to give the impression that the the penciled manuscript is like far predates everything from the other stories that we've read. Christopher Tolkien says it doesn't do that. That is he says that the manuscript was written at around the time that Tolkien was working on the other Book of Lost Tales. So it's not that that manuscript itself is a relic from like several years before he wrote the rest of the Lost Tales stories. Um, but, on the other hand, I think there is still clear evidence 
that the story that Tolkien is writing here, um, and which he you know which he is writing in the penciled manuscript, and then revising uh, you know eventually into the typescript, and then further uh, into the uh, the recitation version, um, is still there's still clear evidence I think that that story predates. Um, and even that, in a sense, the text the, that is the content of the penciled manuscript predates the rest of the Lost Tales story, or certainly the larger Lost Tales story. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, okay. So again, he seems to have written that manuscript. Again, if Christopher's right, he seems to have written that, and dating these manuscripts is often very difficult. But Christopher says... Um, that uh, that that manuscript, that two or a manuscript, dates from around the time that the rest of the Lost Tales were also being written. Um, okay, but there is lots of internal evidence that conceptually the story background, the world in which the story of the Fall of Gondolin takes place, is a place which is fundamentally alien to most of the story that's being told, that's being developed in the rest of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, I believe it to be something darn close to impossible that Tolkien could have written the stuff that he did in the fall of Gondolin had he already conceived of all the other things that he had conceived while writing the rest of the Lost Tales. Um, The other clarification I wanted to make, by the way, remember we were talking about that passage last week where Tolkien referred to the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, and we were sort of contextualizing that, and wondering, remember I brought up at that point the question of how much of these references are later things that are worked in after he had derived all those other stories, and now he's like retconning the fall of Gondolin to try to make it fit with everything else, as he does so often. Um, And I was specifically asking that about the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Well, I'd forgotten at the time that, of course, Christopher says in the notes, in the the, the end notes uh, to that, that that in fact was true. I knew I was remembering that, but I, I, I didn't say it in class last time and I think I, I think this was confusing um, the the reference to the Battle of Unnumbered Tears was a late edition the original penciled manuscript the 2 or A manuscript doesn't mention the Battle of Unnumbered Tears when it talks about the time at which all the Noldoli came under the thraldom of Melko um, instead all that was there was really a quite vague reference to when he Melko when he caught their folk, the Noldoli. Like, there was a point at which he basically captured them. Uh, and But there's not even a sense of a battle. Far from a, any kind of a sense of, of, you know, the presence of the, the return of the Noldoli to Middle-earth and their, um, you know, the, the, this, the, the plot with the Silmarils and their war with Melka, there's no sense of that. At some point he caught them. Um, and he has, you know, caught the men too, apparently. Um, in fact, he seems to have caught everybody except for the uh, for the elves of Gondolin, who ha- who have left open that way of escape so that others can go in there. Um, it's there's the situation with the Valar as well. Um, there is no hint in the Fall of Gondolin text of the rebellion of the Noldoli against the Valar. Um, remember the situation in the Silmarillion, of course is that the Valar have, uh, are, are ticked off at the Noldor. They've cast them out. They are exiled, right? Um, this is true even in the Book of Lost Tales. Indeed, the wrath of the Valar against the Noldor and the way in which they have cut them off and, you know, the sort of, um, well, I was going to say intolerance, which makes it sound irrational. It's not irrational. It's a perfectly rational uh, uh, intolerance of the Noldor. They write them off. They're done with them. 
right? They they have firmly crossed the Noldor the Noldoli, excuse me, off their Christmas card list, right? I mean, that's it. They have they have unfriended the Noldoli. It's over. Um, there's no hint of that in the ref- in the those passages in the Fall of Gondolin where Olmo is talking to them and, and they're talking and Olmo is saying through through Tuor, hey, you should send messengers over to over to Valinor, right? There's no question of like, and perhaps they will pardon you, right? Maybe they will have mercy upon you. No, it's just a question of getting the Valar's attention. In fact, everything what Olmo says is like, and the Valar would be the 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 Valar would be like no end keen to come over and help you, right? If you march out and fight against Melko, they're totally going to have your back, right? No questions, right? And Turgon is the one who's like, yeah, we'll see about that, right? So, so there's, the, 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 there's no sense in the fall of Gondolin that the Noldoli need to ask forgiveness and that they might may or may not receive it from the Valar. The only question is, A, are they going to be able to get their attention because Valinor is clearly hidden, it is clearly shut off, and B, whether or not the Valar are going to help, or C, whether or not if they do help, it's going to do a lick of good, right? Because that also seems to be unclear in Turgon's mind. He doesn't seem to consider the aid of the Valar a slam dunk, even if it does occur. Um, that is, he doesn't consider his victory a slam dunk, with their help even. Uh, so those are, the, those are the issues there. And again, those issues are pretty far away, not just from the eventual story in the published Silmarillion, they're pretty far away from what we saw in Volume 1 of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, So again, I can't see that stuff getting written into the fall of Gondolin. Um, It's like the opposite of Tolkien's retcon, right? He would never have done that had had those other stories existed in his mind. It seems to me much more clear. I mean, to me... It's pretty obvious that the most likely explanation of that is that this story, these elements, predate um, this the other the other stuff that he'd written. These other concepts entirely. Now, what concepts are there? We do see some things, right? Um, that is, like we we, we get um, the division of the elves into two groups, right? The division between the Noldoli uh, uh, and the and the Eldar, you know, the elfin language and the and and the gnomish tongue. We, we see that linguistic distinction, right? There are definitely the two peoples who speak a different language. But Tolkien always said that that was part of it, right? The two elvish languages, you know, which eventually become Quenya and Sindarin, goes way, way back. Um, and indeed, you know, in his own brief uh, description, you know, his sort of one-sentence throw-off description of the Silmarillion. Remember in the preface to the Lord of the, to the second volume, or the second edition of the Lord of the Rings, where he says that uh, uh, he, he, he calls these stories primarily linguistic in, in nature, um, right, and uh, designed to give the necessary background of history for elvish tongues. Um, he says it starts with that division of the language. So it's not surprising to see that there is a sense from the beginning there in the Fall of Gondolin story of these two different elvish peoples who speak different languages. That's, that's, uh, that would be, that fits with everything Tolkien said throughout his life. They are clearly living under a, a, oppression from Melko, um, who seems to be dominant again over everything except for, except for Gondolin. Um, we see, you know, we had those references to Gloomweaver and the darkening of Valinor and the destruction of the trees of Valinor. We were wondering at the time, was that original? Was that added in later? I think it's quite likely that the darkening of Valinor has indeed happened. Um, 
that is, if I had to guess, I mean, if I had to, if I had to put money down, just gamble on whether or not I thought the darkening of the concept of the darkening and then the hiding of Valinor predated the fall of Gondolin. You know, if he already had that idea about Valinor in his mind when he originally wrote the fall of Gondolin, I'd say yes. Um, and the reason I would say that are there are two reasons. One, which I gave last time, which is that um, uh, Arendel fighting against Gloomweaver. Arendo killing Ungoliant is a, a, an old idea for Arendo. It's one of the things that makes him awesome. Um, so, uh, so that's one. The second thing is the references to the Valar that are made to the Valar and to Valinor, and specifically to the hiding of Valinor, to the buffer that has been created between Middle Earth and Valinor in the fall of Gondolin, right? When Turgon talks about it, it's like, man, I've been sending mariners forever, right? And, I mean, like, every year I send mariners and they never get through. Forget it, right? Clearly, Valinor has been hidden. Um, so there seems to be something, like, the Valar have, have you know, have forded up over there in Valinor. Um, and so that something happened to cause that to occur, you know, that that happened after the Darkening seems logical. Um, also, the, f- the idea that the fall of Gondolin is itself a kind of typological um, repetition of the darkening of Valinor, you know, that we've got the, the, those trees, right, those trees that we see in Gondolin, um, which are, sa- you know, seedlings of the trees of Valinor, um, so that we have, you know, the darkening as the, the sort of historical foreshadowing of the story that we're telling now. That also seems to me to work in a way that 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 fits pretty well. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if those concepts um, were in Tolkien's mind um, already. But I'm not sure how much else of the backstory that is of the larger story that he's telling. Again, even in the Book of Lost Tales, you know, Volume One and Two combined, I'm not sure how much more we can really conclude with confidence. Um, was is 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 clearly underpinning the story of the fall of Gondolin. So, why how would this happen then? If he wrote Tour A, if he wrote, you know, the the you know what Christopher Tolkien calls Tour A, if he wrote that penciled manuscript of the fall of Gondolin at the same time that he wrote the Book of Lost Tales, why would he be writing this story which predates all the rest of the stories? Right? I mean, if he's writing it at the same time, why is he not writing a version of this story which is in fact contemporary with the others and includes references to all of them which are not just sort of sewn in? My answer to that is, Tolkien always did that. I mean, that's it's very typical of Tolkien's approach. Tolkien is an extremely... And this is something that has impressed me. The more I have studied Tolkien's manuscript history, the more I have studied the evolution of Tolkien's stories, the more I have been... Uh, the... the, the, the I don't know how to say it. I was about to say the more I've been impressed by that, but that makes me that makes it sound like I think this is awesome. Which I mean, it is kind of cool, but that's not what I mean. Um, the more it has been borne into me that Tolkien was an extremely retentive writer. He has a he has the the reputation of a tinkerer, right? I mean, he talked about that. We've got um, he you know, he seems to be referring to that in his story Leaf by Niggle. Um, he seems he he's a tinkerer. He's always revising. He's always revising. He's, he's a perfectionist. Yes, he is, and he does tinker, but in pretty small ways. The fact is, when you go back and you look at manuscript drafts of his stories, he retains enormous amounts, quite unlikely 
amounts. Um, it seems to me that almost as a kind of a general rule, Tolkien never deleted a sentence if he could possibly avoid it. If he had the choice between just scrapping what he had written before and writing from scratch something entirely new, or recycling, you know, retaining whole paragraphs, whole sentences, large phrases, but just putting them in a new context. He always did the latter. It seems like he always did the latter. Um, even when he's setting out to make, uh, to make a complete change. Uh, you know, uh, this is why, you know, this is one thing that exp- it explains a lot of things. It explains why chapter one of the Lord of the Rings is so different from the rest of it, right? Why is the tone of the long-expected party um, so 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 different from what we get even by the time we get to chapter 3 or to chapter 4 of the fellowship of the ring right the tones already changed a whole lot um how did that happen well that happens if you go back and you look at the return of the shadow volume 6 of the uh, uh, of the the history of middle earth you know which gives the manuscript history of the fellowship of the ring go back and read the very first draft that he, you know, when he sat down in December, I think it was December of 1937, it was right after The Hobbit came out, and The Hobbit is a big success. It's selling like blockbusters for Christmas of, of 1937. Uh, you know, like you know, thousands of people are giving are giving copies of The Hobbit for Christmas, and his publishers all over pleased and coming back to him and saying, "Okay, more, more, write, write more Hobbit books." And so Tolkien's like, "Okay, more Hobbit books. I'll sit down and write another Hobbit book." And so he tries to write the sequel, right? And and and. His very first gesture, trying to retain the same tone as The Hobbit, you know, do something in the same mode, you read that first draft, which has so little to do with what The Lord of the Rings became. I mean, it's, it's, it's only in the most technical sense, you know, the first version of The Lord of the Rings. But read it, and you'll find you'll recognize sentences, paragraphs that he kept so much of it compared to what he changed. I mean, compared to like when you consider the massive, um, overhaul of the concept of what's going on and where the story is going and everything you compare the, uh, the, 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 the transformation of the story itself and the characters and everything important about it. But you compare that with, the amount that he actually altered the prose, and it's amazing. I mean, he he puts everything in a new context, but he doesn't throw stuff away. He just doesn't. Um, maybe some things. It's not that he never deletes anything, um, but he was incredibly retentive in this way. Therefore, um, it seems to me entirely in character. I my own personal theory, and keep in mind, this is just a theory. Right, I don't. I don't have manuscript evidence to point. I'm just. This is my conclusion based on reading this story that Christopher has published in the Book of Lost Tales, Part Two. Um, uh, Tom Hillman says uh, his head was a matham house of sentences. Uh, yes, yes, it is. It is quite like that. Um, uh, okay, so uh, when just uh, my reading of this of this the fall of Gondolin in the in the Book of Lost Tales. Here's my theory. My theory is that he had written something for the fall of Gondolin before. I think he had a text. If he didn't have a text, if he had just had a concept, okay, if he just had a concept of the fall of Gondolin and he sat down to write it in, you know, 1916-17 at the same time he was writing these other stories, I believe he would have written it to be consistent, fully, organically consistent with the rest of these stories. But he didn't. 
And I think he would only do that if he had a previous text that he was working from. Some manuscript that predates 2 or A and didn't survive or something, right? Because if he did have a text, if he actually had prose written already, I could very easily see him not abandoning that prose and rewriting something which sticks to that really clearly. So that instead of saying, okay, I'm just going to take this context, but I'm going to... I'm, 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 I'm going to take this content and I'm going to push it in this completely different way to fit into this new, larger story that I'm pulling together here in the Book of Oz Tales. Um, no, instead of doing that, I'm going to take the original text, but I'm going to retcon it, right? I'm going to add things here and there, and I'm going to re- in order to, to, to make it fit. And it doesn't fit perfectly well. Um... And in part, I think it's because he's not quite as good as Redcon yet, as he will become later on in his career. But nevertheless, um, I, I, this, I, I think that there has to be a layer behind Tour A, or else the story that's as the story as published just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that he would say those things. It doesn't make any sense that he would do that. Um, so I think that there. I think that so this is why, even though even the Tour A manuscript is not dated significantly earlier than the other Book of Lost Tales stuff, I'm pretty convinced that um, we are really getting something which is uh, only slightly altered from, uh, from the earlier stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so that was, um, um, that was my um, uh, clarification. I don't know if it clarified much. Um, but I do, the main thing I want to clarify is what is known, or at least what Christopher is suggesting, and I don't know anything like enough about these manuscripts to second guess what anything that Christopher is saying about them. Um, so I, 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 I want to make sure to separate you know, the facts as Christopher Tolkien tells us them, and my interpretation, my theories based on what we're reading. Okay? Um, so, just that's having said that, now my conscience is uh, uh, is more at rest. Uh, so, okay. With that said, let's carry on, because we're going to talk about the bad guys tonight. I promised that we would talk about the bad guys. Uh, and uh, let's let's do that. So, okay. Orcs first. The very first thing I want to clarify about orcs is nomenclature. Now, um, this is something that people ask a lot. I remember this was like some of the first... This was one of the first questions I ever got through social media when I first uh, started my podcast uh, back in 2009. Um, What's the difference between orcs and goblins? And I I still get asked this all the time. Um, And it's a very sensible question, especially in the context of the later books, because the words sometimes seem to be used uh, to to imply a distinction and sometimes not. Um, I think the... um, I think that the way that we see those words used in this story, even more than any other place that I can think of, illustrates the differences here uh, most, um, most, most clearly, I think. Um, look at this. Now, therefore, Melko's goblins held all the gate and a great part of the wall on either side, whence numbers of the swallow and those of the rainbow were thrust to doom. Random sentence pulled out of the middle of the battle. The phrase, of course, that I think so interesting is Melko's goblins. Now, I don't think that this is just meaning 
you know, Melko's goblins as opposed to somebody else's goblins, right? I mean, like, you know, so they're, they're, they're a bunch of goblins, right? Melko has some of them, and some of them are, like, subcontracted out to somebody else. I do not think that that's what's being said here. Um, because this phrase, I don't believe he ever talks this way about using the word orcs. You know, therefore, Melko's orcs. It talks about the orcs and Melko's goblins. Not always Melko's goblins, but, but in this case we see that. My argument for the difference, my, what my argument has always been, is that goblin is used generically. Um, Tolkien means the word goblin as a generic term because it's used generically in English fairy tale tradition. Um, the word goblin just kind of means a bad guy. Um, you know, like a, 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 a boogeyman, a bugbearer, like the way that we sort of generically use those kinds of terms just to mean some kind of unspecified bad guy. It isn't necessarily, in fairy tales, referring to like a particular race of people um, or creatures. Um, and that seems to be the sense in which he's using it. The orcs are Melko's goblins. That is, you know, it's... Goblin is the category of creature that they are. Um, and Melko's goblins are the orcs. Orc is derived from Tolkien's language. It is from the Orkwe. Uh, did you catch that note? Um, that it, the word orcs wasn't used in 2 or A? He used the, the, the elvish word Orkwe all the way through to describe these people. Um, the orcs are um, uh, so the word orc is derived. The, the word goblin is a traditional and relatively generic term. Orc is derived from Tolkien's languages, um, and I think you know. Ba so basically, the parallel within Tolkien's world, within the Book of Lost Tales world, here is I would say, orc is to goblin as noldoli is to fairy. Fairy is a generic term, too. Um, and he refers to all of these elfin creatures as fairies. Um, but you've got the Eldar and the Noldoli specified within them. Like, within the world, the, 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 the languages within the frame of this world, you know, those characters, they're not talking about, they're not using the word fairy to talk about themselves. Um, and that's for the benefit of the reader, so that we know how to contextualize them. So similarly, I believe, his use of the word goblin um, is to help us to contextualize what orcs are and how to imagine what that is. Um, so uh, um, that's... that's it. Now, with that in mind, Michael Tchaikovsky uh, is saying, you know, is, uh, doesn't the word orc exist elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, sure, it does. I don't think it's an accident that Tolkien decided on that word. That is to say... He often did this, that he essentially gave words that were familiar or, or, or derived words that were like uh, familiar words and gave them this kind of, uh, a kind of a fictional derivation within uh, uh, his, uh, his world. Um, the, you know, I mean, one of the, um, one of the biggest examples of this are the Ents, of course, which is uh, just, you know, from the Anglo-Saxon word, word that means giant, um, but, uh, anyway, uh, so, but clearly, I mean, you've got the Orkwe, right? I mean, he's derived that from within 
their languages. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, yes, it's, Yana is giving me another quotation here. Um, so we've got the dragons, the metal dragons opening, and an innumerable host of the orcs, the goblins of hatred, poured therefrom into the breach. Exactly. The orcs. You know, the goblins. Um, and again, it's it's uh, good. Yeah, M- Michael's just quoting the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, and I I think that it's 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 the same thing. Like it's 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 contextualizing um, who these orcs are. Because remember, there's no clear indication of what orcs are, right? I mean, people are you know we kind of take it for granted because you know Tolkien has established the orc as. Uh, you know, a sort of a fundamental and broad and familiar category of creature, it would not have been so to the original audience. But goblin, that's a word that people are familiar with. Um, so he um, so he uses it to sort of reinforce that. So that's that's totally, Michael and Yana, how I read that passage. The orcs, the goblins of hatred. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's just uh, clarifying what these creatures are. Um, but he also tells us where they come from. So let's look at that. There we go. Okay. Um, and this is really interesting. I'm sure you guys caught this. How it came that ever among men the Noldoli have been confused with the orcs, who are Melko's goblins, there it is again, I know not, unless it be that the certain that certain of the Noldoli were twisted to the evil of Melko and mingled among these orcs. For all that race, that is the orcs, were bred by Melko of the subterranean heats and slime. Their hearts were of granite, and their bodies deformed, foul their faces which smiled not, but their laugh that of the clash of metal, and to nothing were they more fain than to aid in the basest of the purposes of Melko. The greatest hatred was between them and the Noldoli, who named them Glamhoth, or folk of dreadful hate. Okay. Two things we can see, two important conclusions we can draw from this passage. Number one, the perversion of the elves into orcs. The origin of the orcs as twisted elves is not the original story. Right Now, Christopher Tolkien argues, or suggests anyway, that we can see a foreshadowing of it here. Right, That maybe the seeds of that idea are already evident um, in this uh, in this in this phrase, in this, uh, in this passage. But um, but anyway, it's not. Um, uh, it, it's clearly not the original story. Where the orcs came from originally was they were bred by Melko of the subterranean heats and slime, and that also shows that, sort of, the, more importantly, the concept that Tolkien explicitly lays out in the Silmarillion that you know, not that had life of itself could Melko create, is not present. Right, that had life or the semblance of life could Melko create. Right, that Melko can create no life, but can only corrupt that which he finds already there. That is a, a doctrine which Tolkien has in place by his later writings. We see that that is not the case here. Melko has, in fact, created these creatures who seem, on some level, to have wills of their own, but yet have been formed from, uh, in a bread, in a sense, bread 
from the subterranean heats and slime. Their hearts were of granite. I suspect that to be literal, not figurative, like they have very, very hard hearts. No, that he formed their hearts out of stone. I believe, I mean, in the context of that previous sentence, where he's breeding them out of heats and slime, um, I, I see no reason not to take that, that sentence, that, that clause quite literally, that their hearts were of granite. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so those are t- several interesting things that we can that we can see here. Um, yes, uh, several of you are wanting to talk about dragons. We're going to get there. We'll get there. Not quite there yet, because before we talk about dragons, I want to talk about Balrogs. Okay, we get Balrogs, and how in the story of the fall of Gondolin, right? Here's our one of our first real references. Yet as meed of treachery did Melko threaten Meglin with the torment of the Balrogs. Now these were demons of, with whips of flame and claws of steel, by whom he tormented those of the Noldoli who durst withstand him in anything, and the Eldar have called them Malkarauki. Now, th- I love that name, the Malkarauki. What a wonderful, um, a wonderfully evocative uh uh, word here, so okay. Uh, the the whips of flame, you know. So the 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 whip of the flaming whip uh, with which the Balrog pulls Gandalf into the abyss and the Fellowship of the Ring goes all the way back, right? That you know the flaming whips uh, are part of the original paraphernalia of the Balrogs. Um, a few things to notice here. First, um, they are first the, the word demons. And this kind of... It's a little bit hard to know exactly how to take the word demon. Um, That is, on the one hand, he could be using it in a purely figurative sense. Um, These were demons with whips of flame. Um, It's possible that when he says they they are demons, he's not attempting some kind of like genus and species classification of them, but rather is just sort of speaking figuratively about how evil and cruel... And, um, and 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 even in a sense, sort of looking like the traditional images of demons, um, they appear. It's possible that that's all he means by c- characterizing them as demons. That by calling them that, he's trying to evoke certain both visual images and also um, you know sort of character traits in our minds. That seems to me entirely possible. It seems also um, possible. That, oh, and. Karita, you're right. Um, their role as tormentors, um, Karita's saying, is very strongly demonish. I would also add very, very, um, extremely strongly medievally demonish. That is to say, uh, in medieval tradition, I mean, read Dante and you'll clearly see, the primary role that demons have is as the torturers of the underworld. I mean, it's, uh, that's what happens in hell, is that humans are tormented by demons. Um, so, and, and that's a very um, uh, that's a very stable image for all, like, almost every medieval depiction of hell and the torments of hell has demons as the torturers. Um, so that's that's a very um, a very traditional association with demons. But it's also, of course, possible that when he calls them demons, he actually is specifying their genus and species in some sense. And how I would interpret that um, is for... Uh, is basically saying that they are 
spirits. You know, that is that 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 they they are Ainu in nature. Um, and here again, we see it. If we are to understand it that way, um, how I would understand it is as a clarification against his the description of the origin of the orcs. Right, the Balrogs are not bred out of subterranean heats and slime. They're not creatures of Melko. He hasn't constructed them in the way that he has apparently constructed the orcs. Um, they are allied with him, but of a similar class of creature to Melko himself, rather than um, a product of Melko. That's... Um, but I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> we'll come back to another piece of evidence in a little bit, which I think supports that idea. From this story, I mean. Um, but uh, but that seems to me the other logical way to interpret um, that word demon. One thing also that I would point out is that although the description of Balrog seems quite similar, I mean, you know, we can kind of, we can sort of recognize um, uh you know, Gandalf's antagonist on the Bridge of Khazad Doom here. But they seem a bit um, menial, I guess, compared in comparison, right? Um, uh, that is to say, you know, they're the, they're, I mean, they're the, they're the tormentors of the Noldoli. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the torturers uh, in, in, uh, Angamandi. Um, uh, I mean, you know, maybe that's a really a more important position than it sounds like. But one thing that's really clear from the fall of Gondolin is that Balrogs just don't have the stature that Balrogs came to have later on. Um, they're much more minor figures. And we'll see that as we look through, um, um, as we look through the question, Karita asked the question: Do Balrog have do Balrogs have tails? I don't. No, I don't think so. At least I don't. I mean, maybe, but uh, the, I mean, uh, Karita, are you thinking of sort of traditional images of demons? Um, I assume. I don't recall any reference to a Balrog's tail. I might be forgetting one, but I don't think so. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's um, let's go and look at and look at Balrogs in action. Here's Rog's charge, and I miss Rog. Uh, I think Rog was one of the. Uh, it's it's Rog's charge is. I mean, I love it, and I, I it's one of the reasons that I love this version of the Fall of Gondolin more than any other, um, and really, really wish that Tolkien had finished the later Tuor story, because I I. I Believe that Rog's charge, though he wouldn't have been named Rog, probably would almost certainly have been included. But anyway, then said Rog in a great voice, "Who sh- who now shall fear the Balrogs for all their terror? See before us the accursed ones who, for ages, have tormented the children of the Noldoli, and who now set a fire at our backs with their shooting. Remember, they've been shooting flaming arrows up over to set fire to Gondwin. Come ye of the hammer of wrath, and we will smite them for their evil." 
Thereupon he lifted his mace, and its handle was long, and he made a way before him by the wrath of his onset, even unto the fallen gate. But all the people of the stricken anvil ran behind like a wedge, and sparks came from their eyes for the fury of their rage. A great deed was that sally, as the Noldoli sing yet, and many of the orcs were borne backward into the fires below. But the men of Rog leapt even upon the coils of the serpents, and came at those balrogs, and smote them grievously, for all they had whips of flame and claws of steel, and were in stature very great. They battered them into naught, nor, or catching at their whips, wielded these against them, that they tore them even as they had aforetime torn the gnomes, and the number of balrogs that perished was a marvel and dread to the hosts of Melko, for ere that day never had any of the balrogs been slain by the hand of elves or men. Um, this is, uh, uh, Phenomenal. I mean, this is uh, this is absolutely uh, this, this is just wonderful. I love the seizing of their whips of flame and turning them against them. Um, uh, there are just scads of Balrogs. I mean, they are all over the place. Um, so we see the Balrogs being much more numerous and clearly of lower stature, right? I mean, Rog and his people kill. We don't know exactly how many of them they kill, um, but. Um, but they 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 uh, kill lots of them. Um, notice even I mean the idea of them seizing the whips of flame and using them against them though. Notice how that uh, you know, even that the implication is that they're mere creatures, right? That is. He just, they just have a whip, which is somehow... I mean, it's, it must be, in some sense, magical if it's a flaming whip. I mean, presumably, it's not just a material whip that's set on fire or something like that. Um, but yet, I mean, if it's something that can be pulled out of their hands and they can be beaten with it, uh, suggests that it's, it's not merely, you know, sort of an extension of their evil and malicious will. Um, uh, yeah, the, an interesting Kate Neville says these Balrogs seem more like fire trolls. Um, yeah, yeah, in the sense that they are like these really strong creatures that are that are sort of made from fire. Yeah, I mean, again, I you know my discussion about the word demon before it seems likely that they're not just constructed like the like the orcs were constructed out of slime, um, but. Um, but yeah, Yana says flaming is an adjective that could be used for a whip that's not literally, you know, on fire. Um, yes, it's true. I, I kind of suspect that it is that there are actually flames involved um, because the Balrogs seem to be into that kind of thing. But, um, um, but, uh, but anyway, let's let's let, let's more Balrog action. Ecthelian sacrifice. Oh, and by the way. You will notice that uh, I'm sort of shamelessly working in like some of my favorite passages, which uh, we're not going to have time to talk about in any other context, into my discussion of the bad guys here. Um, because, you know, I want to read them. Tuor stood then in the way of that beast, that is the drake that's coming in, but was sundered from, from Egalmoth, and they pressed him backward, even to the center of the square, nigh the fountain. There he became weary from the strangling heat, and was beaten down by a great demon, even Gothmog, lord of Balrogs, son of Melko. Hello. 
But lo, Excelium, whose face was of the pallor of gray steel, and whose shield-arm hung limp at his side, strode above him as he fell, and that, and that gnome drave at the demon, yet did not give him his death, getting rather a wound to his sword-arm, that his weapon left his grasp. Remember, Tor has just carried Excelion bodily back from the battlefield, right? So that's why Excelion is, is uh, his face is the power of gray steel. Um, because, uh, you know, so it's, it's uh, an act of remarkable heroism that Excelion is even upright uh, in defending Tor, one-armed and now no-armed. Then leapt Ichthelion, lord of the fountain, fairest of the Noldoli, full at Gothmog, even as he raised his whip, and his helm that had a spike upon it, he drave into that evil breast, and he twined his legs about his foeman's thighs, and the Balrog yelled and fell forward, but those two dropped into the basin of the king's fountain, which was very deep. There found that creature his bane, and Ichthelion sank, steel-laden into the depths, and so perished the lord of the fountain, after fiery battle in cool waters. Nancy, I agree. Ecthelion is hardcore. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, um, that's pretty awesome. Um, now, several of you are uh, asking, you know, Yana says, why did we lose this? It's incredible. Isn't this awesome? I mean, the reference, the one, the throwaway reference in the published Silmarillion, you know, there slew, there fell Ecthelion of the Fountain in battle with Gothmog, uh, uh, Lord of Balrogs, as either slew other. It's like, okay, either slew other, yeah, but but man, like, oh, holy cow. Um, Karita, yeah, this uh, would make an awesome movie scene. I totally agree. Let me just say, I think the Silmarillion film project is going to linger around the fall of Gondolin a little more than the published Silmarillion does, but anyway. Um, it's, um, oh, Jana, I agree. I, I think it still happened this way. It's absolutely, it's a question of compression. You know, when he's doing the more summary version of the story, you know, the really, really compressed version that we get in the published Silmarillion, he just sums it up. Um, you know, there's no time for this description and these details. But anyway, several of you were asking, of course, very, or, mar- or, or marveling, uh, very appropriately, um, at, um, at the, Reference to the fact that Gothmog was the son of Melko, asking is 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 he is he literally the son of Melko? Yes, yes, he was literal. As far as we can see, there is every reason to think that um, that that Gothmog is literally the son of Melko. In the notes, um, as uh, 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 who was it? Um, yes, Nancy uh, was talking about. Yes, uh, Gothmog's mom was an ogress. I think. Um, so yes, we have apparently, we have, we have actual sexual reproduction of Melko and an ogress bringing forth Gothmog, Lord of Balrogs. Now, this is um, this is consistent with what we see in the rest of the Lost Tales. Um, you will remember, of course, that in the published Silmarillion, the Valar still get married, but they don't have kids. Um, they have the Maiar of their people who are associated with them, um, but uh, but they, they don't have they don't procreate the Valar um, in the later version of the story. In the Book of Lost Tales, they do procreate. Um, Fionwe, later Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, is the son of Manwe and Varda. Remember, he uh, is listed. If I'm remembering correctly, he is listed as fighting along with Tolkas and 
and Turin against Melko at the end. Um, remember, Mel- or, you know, Turin was going to come back and give Melko his uh, death stroke with the black sword. Um, Theonway is fighting with him. Why? Because he's, he's Manway's kid. That's why. Um, he becomes the champion of, of, uh, of Manway because he's his son. Uh, he, he's the son of Manway and Varda. As Gothmog is the son of Melko. So this is the passage I was referring to a little bit earlier when I said that there's, uh, there's evidence to think uh, that the Balrogs are not merely constructed beings, but spirits on something like a similar level to Melko. If Gothmog is actually the child of Melko, he is clearly um, uh, on the same, in the same, you know, genus, uh, if not species, as Melko. Um, you know that that again, he's he's not merely he's not merely constructed. Um, so, I. Um, Michael asks, do Meyer have children in the Silmarillion? Um, yes. Yes, good, Michael. You immediately give one example, Ungoliant. Yep, she had kids. Um, of course, Melian, famously, right? Luthien's mom. Um, so so we know that they are capable of procreation. Um, though notice, both of them, both Ungoliant and Melian, have children with mortal creatures. That is, Ungoliant breeds with monsters, presumably mortal monsters, beast-like creations, um, to have Shelob and, you know, her family. Um, Melian, of course, marries Thingol, so um, I don't think we get, in the later versions, I don't think we get any um, you know, of uh, the, uh, the Valar or Maiar procreating among themselves. Um, but we do sometimes see them incarnating themselves and having children with mortals of one kind or other. Um, so, um, so yeah, no, so I think, I, I do believe that when he says Lord of Balrog, son of Melko, he means that quite literally. Um, there's, there's no, I think, in the context of the Book of Lost Tales, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that, really. Um, uh, Michael asks, could a Valar have children with mortals? Yes! I was about to say, there's no evidence that they would, but yes, there is. Remember that really creepy scene with Melko and, and Tenuvial in the tale of Tenuvial? Where Tenuvial was all kind of suggesting, he was doing her like very obliquely flirtatious thing with Melko, and he was conceiving this idea. Um, uh, I, I think the implication there is that he's... I think I think that Melko is thinking uh, procreative thoughts there with Luthien. So, um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, exactly, Yana, that really creepy and disturbing scene, which really only gets more creepy and disturbing when you think about it in this, in this uh, context. Um, Sarah asks, are ogres the same as trolls? I have no idea at all. Um, ogres are something that will completely drop out of Tolkien's fictional world. I mean, I don't recall that the word ogre is ever used in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Ever. 
even metaphorically, I don't think. Um, it just has a concept that's gone in the later things. So, therefore, what's their backstory? I don't know. I mean, we know there are giants, too. Um, remember the giant that's alluded to in Tenuvial's spell about the, the longest things, right? Um, so, um, uh, wait, wait, there is a reference. There is a reference. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. When Bilbo is trying to think of the answer to the time riddle. Hang on, I gotta find it now. Ha-ha! <laughs> yep, there it is. Poor Bilbo sat in the dark thinking of all the horrible names of all the giants and ogres he had ever heard of told in tales. Okay, one. There's one reference to ogres. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. There it is. There it is. Yes, you're right, Yana. You're right. Okay. But, but seriously, that's pretty, that's pretty slight. Uh, they don't, uh, and it's, and I mean, uh, you know, we saw a heck of a lot more of the stone giants, and they don't seem to have a place uh, in the, in, in the later mythology either. Anyway, okay. Um, so I have no idea. Like the story of the 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 ogress uh, of uh, you know uh, Fluithuin, the ogress who is the mother of uh, of, of Gothmog, no clue. Um, yeah, Patrick points out that even in that quotation, it says that you know they he, they're told in tales, so it doesn't necessarily mean they're real, just that there are stories that exist. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway. So I don't know. Point is, I I don't even know how to begin to explain what ogres are and where they might fit in uh, in Tolkien's mind right here. Even the fact that he never includes them in any of these stories, in any of the Book of the Lost Tales stories, certainly seems to suggest that they don't uh, um, they don't feature very prominently uh, in his mind here. Um, anyway, okay. Matthew says uh, Matthew. Hershenroder says that he searched the Lord of the Rings in Silmarillion and couldn't find any occurrence of ogre. See, look at you people with your newfangled electronic search tools. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. Now that's good. I was pretty sure that there weren't, but uh, it's good to have it's good to have that confirmed. Anyway, on to more important Balrog scenes, aka my favorite scenes that I want to read. Gorfindel and the Balrog. Already the half had passed the perilous way in the falls of th- and, and, and the falls of Thornseer, when that Balrog that was with the rearward foe leapt with great might on certain lofty rocks that stood into the path on the left side upon the lip of the chasm, and thence with a leap of fury he was past Gorfindel's men and among the women and the sick in front, lashing with his whip of flame. Then Glorfindel leapt forward upon him, and his golden armor gleamed strangely in the moon, and he hewed at that demon, that it leapt again upon a great boulder and Glorfindel after. Now there was a deadly combat upon that high rock above the folk, and these, pressed behind and hindered ahead, were grown so close that well-nigh all could see, yet it was over ere Glorfindel's men could leap to his side. The ardor of Glorfindel drave that Balrog from point to point, and his mail fended him from its whip and claw. Now he had beaten a heavy swinge upon its iron helm, now hewn off the creature's whip-arm at the elbow. Then sprang the Belrog in the torment of his pain and fear, full at Glorfindel, who stabbed like the dart of a snake, but he found only a shoulder, 
and was grappled, and they swayed to a fall upon the crag-top. Then Glorfindel's left hand sought a dirk, and this he thrust up that it pierced the Balrog's belly, nigh his own face, for that demon was double his stature. And it shrieked, and fell backwards from the rock, and falling clutched Glorfindel's yellow locks beneath his cap, and those twain fell into the abyss. Okay, now we have the story of Glorfindel and the Balrog. What do you notice? What things do we learn about Balrogs here? About this story? Um, uh, I, I get notice the pace of this, yes. Uh, Roy is pointing out that uh, uh, Tolkien has shifted into, into a, a paratactic uh, syntax here, yes. Notice the, the rapid... Um, uh, the rapid, simple sentences, um, you know, uh, causes strung together there um, in that way. Okay, so, um, Michael, good. It does seem to have a basic human body plan. That's a good way of saying it, though it's twice a man's height. Um, so they are of great stature, you know, they're so, you know, they're like, what, 12-ish feet tall, but they do seem to have a basic human body plan. Um, uh, the, it's... They're good at jumping, yes, but so is Gorfindel. <clears throat> Gorfindel kicks its butt. It is lo- It has already lost. It's trying to escape Gorfindel and failing. Um, and Gorfindel uh, uh, has has killed it before it, while falling to its death, grabs him by the hair and pulls uh, him after it. Um, it's um. Yeah, good, Sarah. It's not just a creature of shadow, right? We have the dismemberment of it, right? Suggest and the and you know the stabbing up into its belly, right? All suggesting that it is uh, it is a creature of flesh. Um, uh, yeah, Sharon, it can certainly be killed a lot a lot more easily than the one that Gandalf fought. Though, notice the parallel there, right? Um, Gandalf's one is much harder to kill, but Gandalf has defeated it too. Right, and it is falling in fear, uh, and pulls Gandalf after it. Um, so we have that parallel of both of the times we see somebody, someone, one of the good guys, who has just defeated a Balrog, pulled into the abyss by the Balrog. Um, it is when the because the Balrog is on the losing side of that confrontation. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Roy asks, "Do we know if it informed Gandalf's Balrog match?" I mean, how can it not? That is to say, again, Tolkien is so retentive, right? He he doesn't ever get a chance to, you know, he, he never describes this fight again. You know, he does it here, and he's never... 30 years later, you know, when, or, you know, 20, between 20 and 30 years later, he's writing Gandalf and the Bridge of Casa Doom. He's never written this story again, right? So... We have, you know, is that in his mind? Is he sort of redoing that, being able to bring out that material there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Michael is pointing out that, uh, like, uh, like Grendel, the, uh, the, the Balrog loses an arm. Of course, unlike Grendel, he can be killed with weapons. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Arthur, I agree. Every Balrog we meet falls down, either into a chasm or a fountain, and they always take someone with them. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and of course, as many of you have pointed out, obviously, no wings whatsoever, nor any hint or suggestion of wings. Um, and it's not just the leaping and plummeting um, which show that they clearly have no wings, and the sort of, you know, Michael, as you pointed out, the, sort of the obvious human body plan that they seem to have. Um, but, uh, but of course, you'll remember the whole situation. Nothing makes the fact that Balrogs were never conceived with wings in Tolkien's mind more clear than this story of the fall of Gondolin. Um, you think about how the Gondolin attack... Um, the whole description of the attack on Gondolin is premised on the fact that Balrogs have no wings and cannot fly, right? Um, first of all, they have to climb laboriously over the mountains and crawl acro- across the plain. Even though their plan is to catch the Gondothwim by surprise, yet nevertheless they have this long, you know, they have miles, like 20 miles to travel from the, uh, from the, the feet of the mountains to the city, and yet, you know, they crawl laboriously on foot across uh, across the gap. Clearly, they wouldn't be doing that if they could fly. Secondly, you've got the cliffs. The press, the, you know, the, the the sides of Amangwarath are like glass, right? They can't climb up it. It's a serious obstacle. They have to do that thing where they pile the dragons right up on top of each other until they can until the topmost dragon can reach the gate. Um, you know, otherwise the Balrogs are down there at the foot of the cliff, being like, "Well, we're stuck. We can just shoot arrows up over the top. That's really all we can do." Right? Um, it's pretty clear um, that, uh, <laughs> that even apart from the plummeting to their deaths, uh, pretty clear that obviously Balrogs cannot fly. Um, in fact, you know, you can go further if you remove that one. Uh, sort of slightly unfortunate metaphor that Tolkien makes in The Fellowship of the Ring about the shadow that spread out like wings behind the Balrog. If you were just to remove that element of description from there, without that, there isn't any reason and any writings ever about Balrogs to imply, suggest, or accommodate the idea that they have wings. They are manifestly land-bound creatures um, so again, it, there's nothing, nothing at all, other than that one, meta, that one sentence, which is first a simile and then a metaphor, um, two sentences, I guess. Um, uh, and you're right, James. Melko and his creatures don't do any flying at all in the Book of Lost Tales. It's not just the Balrogs. Agreed. Um, in fact, we hear about that right in this passage with Gorfindel when we meet the eagles again. Then arose Thorndor, king of eagles, and he loved not Melko, for Melko had caught many of his kindred and chained them against sharp rocks to squeeze from them the magic words whereby he might learn to fly, for he dreamed of contending even against Manway in the air. And when they would not tell, he cut off their wings and sought to fashion therefrom a mighty pair for his use, but it availed not. Um, poor Melko can't fly and has no air power whatsoever because he can't squeeze from the eagles the magic words whereby he might learn to fly. Um, so yes, James, it seems absolutely clear that all of Melko's creatures are 
landbound. Um, he does have hawks in his service. Yana, you're absolutely right. Um, those are animals. They're just animals, um, and they serve him. But none of his none of his creatures, orcs, dragons, Balrogs, none of them can fly. Um, he does at least, uh, Yana, as you point out, have birds in his service um, in in the fall of Gondolin. But that's all that he can do. No, Glorand can't fly either. Glorand is a completely land-bound creature. Again, that's why uh, Turin can do what he does and come up underneath it and stab him as he's crossing over the cleft. Um, if he were if he were able to fly, that whole thing wouldn't work. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Thomas, you're right. We get other references later, but that's later. Not in the fall of Gondolin. Um, well, since we're all itching to talk about dragons, let's go ahead and segue to dragons here. Um, okay. First. The first reference that we get to dragons is in the Meglin's description of the war engines that he advises Melko to make. But the read that, Mel- that Meglin gave to Melko was that not all the host of the orcs nor the Balrogs in their fierceness might by assault or siege hope ever to overthrow the walls and gates of Gondolin, even if they availed to win under the plain without. Therefore, he counseled Melko to devise out of his sorceries a succor for his warriors in their endeavor. From the greatness of his wealth of metals and his powers of fire, he bid him make beasts like snakes and dragons of irresistible might, that should overcreep the encircling hills and lap that plain and its fair city in flame and death. Okay. Make from the greatness of his wealth of metals and his powers of fire, make beasts like snakes and dragons of irresistible might. Beasts like snakes and dragons. Okay. So these are obviously machines, right? I mean, make beasts is probably figurative, right? These sound like machines of war, right? Let's keep reading. This is the description of them actually being made. Then on a time, Melko assembled all his most cunning smiths and sorcerers, and of iron and flame they wrought a host of monsters such as have only at that time been seen and shall not again be till the great end. Some were all of iron so cunningly linked that they might flow like slow rivers of metal or coil themselves around and above all obstacles before them, and these were filled in their innermost depths with the grimmest of the orcs with scimitars and spears. So we have like the, you know, the... the, the the Trojan centipedes, right, which, uh, which, which come in. Okay, and then disgorge orcs. We see this happen in the battle. Okay, uh, where was I? Others, ah, here we are. Others of bronze and copper were given hearts and spirits of blazing fire, and they blasted all that stood before them with, their, with the terror of their snorting or trampled whatso escaped the ardor of their breath. Yet others were creatures of pure flame that writhed like lo- like ropes of molten metal, and they brought to ruin whatever fabric they came nigh, and iron and stone melted before them and became as water, 
and upon them rode the Balrogs in hundreds, and these were the most dire of all those monsters which Melko devised against Gondolin. Okay. What are these things? What are these things? Are they are they monsters or are they machines? Right. This is a big. This is the big question. Um, some of them do sound very machine-like. Right. They do sound, as Michael says, like armored troop carriers. Right. They they operate quite like that. They do sound like war machines. Um, those last ones described are seem are actually made of fire. Here's Christopher's contemplation of this in his commentary. In the Silmarillion, the dragons that came against Gondolin were of the brood of Glaurung, which were now become many and terrible, whereas in the tale, the language employed suggests that some at least of the monsters were inanimate devices, the construction of smiths in the forges of Angband. But even the things of iron that opened about their middles to disgorge bands of orcs are called ruthless beasts, and Gothmog bade them pile themselves. Those made of bronze or copper were given hearts and spirits of blazing fire, while the fire drake that Tuor hewed screamed and lashed with its tail. That is, there are some places, you know, some of the things said about them may seem, make it seem really clear that they are mechanical creatures that were made by smiths. But other places make it sound like they have wills, that, like they are sentient uh, of their own. Um, uh, ruthless, uh, ruthless beasts, right, uh, as he's quoting there, again, that could be purely metaphorical, right? I mean, you could call a tank a ruthless beast as it comes towards you. Um, but it doesn't really sound like that. And notice, I think that Christopher is right to point out you know, Gothmog bade them pile themselves, right? That's different from saying, like, position the worms in this way, right? He's talking to the worms and saying, pile yourselves up, and like, okay, we will pile ourselves up. It makes it sound like they're sentient, like they're making choices, like they're doing these things. Um, my own theory? Um, both. I think it's clear that they're both. Um, are they clearly engines of craft, and you know uh, uh, the work of smithcraft? Yes. But going back for a second, and notice how Christopher Tolkien quotes the uh, the the fact that they're um, they're where's the he, about the smiths? Uh, yeah, the the construction of smiths in the forges of Angband. Well, yeah, but. To go back to the original passage that he's quoting from there, right? Uh, he assembled all his most cunning smiths and sorcerers, right? They're not only work of smithcraft, they're also work of sorcery. Um, they are wrought of iron and flame, yes. But as Nancy was just recalling a, a couple minutes ago when we started talking about this, the orcs are wrought of slime and subterranean flame, you know, subterranean heats. Remember that we're not talking about later Melkor. We're not talking about the Melkor who can't make things that have life of themselves. The orcs were made from slime. These dragons appear to be made from metal 
and from fire and some combinations thereof, right? We've got the, it's, we've got like three different breeds, right? There's the one which is all metal and no fire, one which is all fire and no metal, and one which is both, it seems, right? Um, uh, but, but I think clearly, um, well, I say clearly, as if there's no controversy here, I think the evidence suggests, so I'm be more cautious about that, I think the evidence suggests that both of these things are true. I think that the reason um, that people uh, are confused about this is that both of these references are made. Um, if you want to make an argument to say, no, these are all creatures, these are all, you know, sentient creatures um, that are serving Melko, there's lots of evidence for that. As Christopher's um, quoting, when we come back to Christopher's passage here, um, a- as he's quoting, there's plenty of reason to think that. If you want to make the argument that, no, 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 they're, they're machines that are made by Melko, there's plenty of evidence to support that, too. I think they're clearly both. Um, I think that these are crafted creatures, but the orcs were crafted creatures, too. Um, so I believe that in within the context of the fall of Gondolin, we have... This is sort of the the you know these dragons these this special kinds of dragons um, that Melko has made for the fall of Gondolin these terrible dragons um, which uh, have come against Gondolin and won't be seen again until the great end um, are manufactured dragons um, uh, 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 J.J. Valenzuela asks, was the idea that the orcs were made from slime the basic for, the basis for the uh, the Uruk High creation in those mud pits in the Lord of the Rings movies? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, that is, you know, in the extended edition, Saruman has that long conversation. Actually, it was in the theatrical edition, too. Um, I remember it because... I th- I'm pretty sure it was, because I think I remember people commenting on it. And... Uh, having long conversations with people about this after it came out in the theater. But anyhow, um, those like slime breeding gestation pits that uh, Saruman has, or Saruman has the Uruk High in the films. Um, I uh, no, I mean maybe I don't know. I mean, were they thinking of it? I don't know if they were thinking of it or not. I don't see it necessarily as a reference. Um, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, I mean, it's very clear that the fil- even the film version has the later Silmarillion idea. Again, Saruman is repeating that, you know, you were elves once and you were, you know, taken and tortured and whatever. Um, so it- it's pretty clear that the films are working on the later Silmarillion version of the origin of orcs, which have been perfected by Saruman. Again, quoting the film there. Um, but... <sighs> Honestly, I think they just wanted to make it look gross and intimidating. But also, I think they cleaned it up a little bit for the movie. Um, because it's pretty clear that where the Urukai came from are from uh, mothers. You know, that orcs have mommies too. Um, and if. Saruman is mingling the races of orcs and men. There's only one way to do that, and it's really uncomfortable. Um, and uh, I'm unsurprised. Yes, Karita, it's better than showing uh, raped women uh, bearing half-orc children. That's exactly um, what it's cleaner than. Um, 
this is what this is what I think uh, Treebeard is alluding to when he calls the mingling of the the races of orcs and men a black evil. Um, uh, he speaks pretty strongly about it, and I I think uh, that's kind of what he has in mind there. Um, anyway, uh, uh, several of you are sort of talk, uh, thinking about um, these manufactured beasts as both sort of connected to World War One war machines and uh, connected to, uh, uh, you know, Tolkien's um, sort of anti-industrial stance. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that we can see those things in operation here. Um, but this is... I just... Okay, one thing I would just want to say briefly. Sometimes I think this is actually an example. Um, this is an example of times in which sometimes the desire to make external connections to Tolkien's life can actually uh, bias your interpretation of the, of the text itself. That is, the majority of the people who read The Fall of Gondolin Dragons here and insist, these are machines. They're not living creatures. They're just machines. Are people who want to make exactly those connections with Tolkien's anti-industrial stance and, and his, like, war, World War One commentary angle. Um, and so they want to solidify the connection between these mechanical war machines that Melko makes and, uh, you know, the mechani- the the... the mechanization that Tolkien was so opposed to. And again, I am not at all disagreeing with the overall premise of Tolkien's anti-industrial, you know, all that stuff. It's all, that's all, that's all fine. But the fact that the desire to make that connection leads people to overlook the fact that that's, they are in fact living magical creatures, um, I, I think is to me one of the red flags about that kind of approach. Like, one of the reasons... It's one of the examples I would point to as to how um, the desire to make connections between Tolkien's story and his life can sometimes really skew your reading of the story itself. Um, because you're, you're just thinking of Tolkien's life. I mean, if you're looking... If you're reading The Fall of Gondolin and you're just thinking World War One, World War One, World War One you're not reading the story of the fall of Gondolin anymore. Um, and therefore you can, it's easy to make, uh, to make some pretty serious mistakes, um, when you, uh, when you're doing that. That's all. That's all. Um, okay. But, as several of you have pointed out, hang on, this is not how, dra- what dragons are like in Turambar. This is not what Glorand is like. No, it really isn't, is it? Um, and we can read that in one of two ways. On the one hand, we could we could read this and say, okay, no, actually, uh, this is totally consistent with the way that dragons are depicted, with you know, the way that Glorand is depicted in the story of Turambar, because remember at the beginning it said that he made these beasts like snakes and dragons, or Meglin, right, when Meglin was, uh, was mapping this out. Right, he said, uh, "What was that phrase again?" He said, "Right, bid him make beasts like snakes and dragons." So clearly, the concept of dragon already exists. 
right? Um, in order to say, you know, for Meglin to say, make it look like a dragon, right? Um, so it's not that... So within the story of the fall of Gondolin, it does not suggest this is the invention of dragons. But, at the same time, we don't see any other dragons, right? We don't see uh, him recruiting a whole bunch of other dragons. So... Um, we don't seem to see Glorand, um, you know, as uh, in, as Christopher's pointing out here, we don't get any of the, blood of, the, the brood of Glaurung, you know, or Glorand, as he would have been then, hanging around here. They're not part of the attack force. It's all the metal and fire um, manufactured dragons that we see attacking Gondolin. But let's go back to Turambar, um, which, especially if, as I've argued at the beginning, what we're seeing here is a different phase of the uh, of of Tolkien's conception of the overall mythology it would make a certain amount of sense that we would see fundamentally different dragons, and we certainly do see dragons which are quite different from those ones that we see in the Fall of Gondolin, which are really unique uh, in Tolkien's writing. Never again are we going to get you know metal mechanized dragons like that. Back to Turambar here. Now those drakes and worms are the evilest creatures that Melko has made, and the most uncouth. Yet of all they are the most powerful, save it be the Balrogs only. A great cunning and wisdom have they, so that it has been long said amongst men that whosoever might taste the heart of a dragon would know all tongues of gods or men, of birds or beasts, and his ears would catch whispers of the Valar or of Melko, such as never had he heard before. Few have there been that ever achieved a deed of such prowess as the slaying of a drake, nor might any even of such doughty ones taste their blood and live, for it is as a poison of fires that slays all save the most godlike in strength. Howso that may be, even as their lord these foul beasts love lies and lust after gold and precious things with a great fierceness of desire, albeit they may not use nor enjoy them. Nancy points out that this is a difficult theory to test, uh, that is, uh, about the uh, tasting of the heart of a dragon. Uh, It's true, there are comparatively few examples of that. But there's one really prominent example of that, and that is, of course, Sigurd and Fafnir in the Norse tradition. Um, That is one of the most revealing passages here. Um... I don't want to oversimplify, or rather, I want to resist oversimplification. It's tempting, however, to take this as evidence that when we're reading the story of Turambar and meeting Glorand, we're in pure Norse mythology mode. That is, like, not that Glorand is Fafnir, but um, that Fafnir is clearly the precedent that, uh, that, that he's following. That element, the fact that if you eat the heart of a, of a dragon, you learn the tongues of all creatures, is directly from the story of Sigurd. It's what he does after he kills Fafnir. Um, so, uh, so, okay, now, now notice there's, you know, at the beginning there, uh, those drakes and worms are the evilest creatures that Melko has made. There's that made, that verb there, right? Okay, so did he manufacture them after all? Remember, in this context here, all of the creatures of Melko seem to be made by him, right? So that doesn't suggest anything special about that. Um, And they're the most uncouth, yet of all they're the most powerful, save it be the Balrogs only. 
Notice how he seems to be including the Balrogs in the category of creatures that Melko has made. Um, even though we see also that business about Gothmog being Melko's son, conceivably. Um, <laughs> conceivably. See what I did there? Anyway, um, notice the way that he describes the dragons. They have this almost metaphorical nature. That is, okay, their blood, their heart is wise, but their blood is poisonous. Um, they, uh, they love lies, and they lust after gold and precious things with a great fierceness of desire, a desire which infects others. I mean, if they're not actively allegorical creatures, they work really well allegorically. Um, and I would say that in that, too, does Glorand take after Fafnir. Um, for those of you who know the Norse story, Fafnir, the great dragon, became a dragon. He was originally a human, he was originally a man, and he became a dragon by lusting after treasure. He became a dragon kind of like Eustace does in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, by the lustful desire for gold, and then, like, he... Like poof, he's a dragon. Um, that is his dragonish nature. His dragonish body seems to be merely sort of a magical manifestation of what his inner soul, his inner character, had already been. Um, and uh, we'll come back to this stuff a little bit when we talk about the Nauglafring, because it's going to involve the curse on treasure, on dragon treasure, which is again another very Norse idea. Um, so, so, okay, so it, it sounds like, so, you know, notice we were not in a Norse mythological place when we were looking at the dragons of Gondolin, but we certainly are here. Um, one other passage, again, still from the Turambar story. Thither as they looked, they saw that the land had become all barren, and was blasted for a great distance about the ancient caverns of the Rodothlem, and the trees were crushed to the earth or snapped. Toward the hills a black heath stretched, and the lands were scored with the great slots that that loathly worm made in his creeping. Notice this idea of the desolation of the dragon, right? Of the entire land around being blasted and destroyed by the presence of the dragon in its midst. This is an old idea, right? Goes all the way back to, gl to, to Glorand here. Um, so the desolation of Smaug has lots of precedent. Many are the dragons that Melko has loosed upon the world, and some are more mighty than others. Now the least mighty, yet were they very great beside the men of those days, are cold, as is the nature of snakes and serpents, and many of them, and of them, a many having wings, go with the uttermost noise and speed. But the mightier are hot, and very heavy and slow going, and some belch flame, and fire flickereth beneath their scales, and the lust and greed and cunning evil of these is the greatest of all creatures. And such was the Foaloke, whose burning there set all the places of this habitation in waste and desolation. Already greater far had this worm waxen than in the days of the onslaught upon the Rodothlam, and greater too was his hoarded treasure. For men and elves and even orcs he slew, or enthralled that they served him, bringing him food to slake his lust on precious things, and spoils of their harryings to swell his hoard. 
Um, yeah, there are some wonderful phrases in this paragraph, aren't there, Roy? I agree. Uh, Roy really likes slake his lust and swell his horde. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, uh, anyway, um, that image of fire flickering beneath their scales, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of. So we have these characterizations. Now the cold snakes and serpents, you know, the, the, the cold drakes seem to be not drakes that, like, breathe cold, like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, white dragons or something like that, but rather they are cold as is the nature of snakes and serpents. That is, they're cold-blooded, like, like snakes are. Um, but there are others, and some of those have wings. Uh, and they're really they're really fast. But the mightier are hot and heavy and slow-going and belch flame. Um, so, again, I, so I, I, the, I think is, is an important context for the cold drakes there. We see here the different species of dragons. One of the things to emphasize is the variety here. They seem to be more like animals, obviously more like animals than the, than the, 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 the wrought creatures of, uh, of, of the fall of Gondolin. But they even have, you know, sort of a, a species variety like uh, like animals might have. Um, though they are still loosed upon the world by Melko, um, we don't have... It doesn't say that he that Melko has bred them specifically, though the idea of him loosing them upon the world um, at least accommodates that idea. You know, maybe suggests it, maybe not quite so strongly as that. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, it's 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 at the very least consistent with it. Um, so dragons in the fall of Gondolin, and again, you know, as as we can see, and as I've argued, the fall of Gondolin, we're seeing the early stages. He leaves open the idea that there are other dragons, or at least that the conception of dragons exists. But the only dragons we see are these magical creatures made out of metal and fire, like the orcs are made out of slime. Um, he departs from that idea by the time we get to the Foeloke, and when we have a dragon protag- or antagonist of the story, when we get Glorund to be the antagonist to Turin, he is made into... You know, we, we, we leave this much more novel conception. I mean, Tolkien's first idea there, the dragons in, in, in the Fall of Gondolin are much more original than Glorant. Glorant is highly derivative of Norse mythology. But that seems to be a, a, a purposeful shifting of gears uh, on Tolkien's part. Um, you know, a choice to turn away from that more idiosyncratic creation of the dragons and to turn instead to a more traditional concept of dragons as uh, very powerful, wicked, and malicious beasts that have wise hearts. Um, but are very evil. And that seems to be then where we get, you know, from there, the the concept of dragons as we get them from, you know, Glorund to Glaurung to Smaug, um, and that seems to be where Tolkien's going to stay in the dragon department um, uh, from from here on out. We are running out of time, but there are, it, there are a couple things I want to touch on uh, with dispatch. 
Megwin. We haven't talked about Megwin at all. Let's look a little bit at Megwin's story. Um, here's our introduction to Megwin and his background, all the background we get on Megwin. Now, the sign of Megwin was a sable mole, and he was great among quarrymen and a chief of the delvers after Orr, and many of these belonged to his house. Less fair was he than most of this goodly folk, swart, and of none too kindly mood, so that he won small love, aw, just like Turin, and whispers there were that he had orcs' blood in his veins, but I do not know how this could be true. And here's our narrator saying, I don't think any of anybody in his parentage, you know, I don't think any of the other elves of, 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 of Gondolin, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, bred with orcs. But anyway. Um, now, he had bid often with the king for the hand of Idril. Yet Turgon, finding her very loath, had as often said nay. For him, for him seemed Megwin's suit was caused as much by the desire of standing in high power beside the royal throne as by love of that most fair maid. Fair indeed was she, and brave thereto, and the people called her Idril of the Silver Feet, in that she went ever barefoot and bareheaded, king's daughter as she was, save only at pomps of the Ainur. And Meglin gnawed his anger, seeing Tuor thrust him out. So what do we know about Megwin? What's Megwin's backstory? Um, first, uh, that he appears to be native of Gondolin. Um, you know, there's 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 no, you know, the, the, the sort of obviously the later story of Ale, the Dark Elf, isn't there? There's a note um, where Christopher explains the um, the the probable origins of that element of the story, but um, but Megwin just seems to be, he's a minor um, and he's ugly. Karita, uh, I agree, that's an important um, that's an important point. Um, uh, he's not kindly and most importantly, he's ambitious. He is seeking for the hand of Idril, not for love of her, um, but because he wants to stand closer to power. Um, so his desire for power is a central element um, in his configuration here. Um, we Another thing I think just to mention about Idril here, um, Idril of the Silver Feet is still her name, that's what Celebrindal means, but she, um, in, in the Silmarillion, she's still Idril of the Silver Feet, but we don't know exactly why she's called Idril of the Silver Feet, but it's interesting, the context of that, it's she went ever barefoot and bareheaded, king's daughter as she was. And I think the implication of that is a kind of humility. Um, she seems to be loved by the people. There seems to be an element of condescension in the, not in the insulting modern sense, um, that is her not maintaining a distinction of rank, right? Um, uh, you know, a kind of, uh, a kind of, you know, she's down to earth and not setting herself aside by, uh, um, you know, by, by fancy dress. Um, uh, so that's, um, 
that seems to be one of the... So, so we get more than just the fact that she has attractive feet. Yes, as both Nancy and Karita have noticed, that seems to be a trend here, right? We had Tunuviel's twinkling feet uh, and Idril's uh, beautiful feet. Uh, in fact, notice the strong correlation between elven women with, with noteworthy feet... Uh, with you know significantly attractive feet and marrying of uh, people who are or will become human uh, <laughs> in Baron and Tour. But anyway, um, Idril is a much more prominent figure. You know, we get so much more of Idril in this story. She's a much stronger character uh, in this version of the story than she is in the mere synopses uh, of it. Okay, so we see Megwin's ambition. Now, the context of Megwin's betrayal is, of course, very different in the fall of Gondolin um, than it is in the later things, and primarily that's because, and an, I'm, I'm going to start rushing here, so I'm not going to read this whole thing. Um, uh, I'm going to refrain from reading it, but this is the passage where we learn that he's already um, uh, uh, he's, he's already found out where Gondolin is. In fact, um, some of his spies have scaled the encircling hills at certain places and gazed upon the beauty of the city of Gondolin and the strength of Amon Gwarath from afar. Of course, in the published Silmarillion, the whole question is, where is Gondolin? Who knows? I don't know. Melko knows. Um, so it's not the location of Gondolin that Megalin has to betray to him. Um, but... Um, so, what's the point of Meglin's treachery? Wherein does Meglin's treachery lie in this in the Book of Lost Tales story, the Fall of Gondolin? And also, what does this show us about the nature of the conflict between Melko and Gondolin? And I think one of the main things that it shows us is it's one thing that we see reflected is the shift in status of Melko himself. Just as the Valar were not nearly as impressive, right? Uh, uh, you know, remember Torgan not assuming that if the Valar come and help him, he's necessarily going to win in battle. Um, so Melko too is not unassailable. Remember, that's Olmo's advice, right? Okay, Torgan, get your army and go out and whoop Melko. Right? We'll back you up. Promise. Right? But again, the premise is you could do it. You could take on Melko and probably defeat him. Um, Melko knows where they are, but he can't attack it yet, right? Meglin betrays to it. Yes, Yana, he betrays its defenses, right? He tells them all about how they can best assail it, and remember, he's the one who comes up with the dragon, with the, with the metal dragon plan, right? Um, he tells them how best to overcome the defenses of Gondolin. Um, that's what he has to offer uh, to, um, to Melko, who already knows where Gondolin is. Um, what this means is that Meglin's betrayal, I think, is worse in the old version of the story than in the newer version of the story. Um, it's a little more thorough. Um, he's captured and betrays where Gondolin is located, and, and you know, and, and and tells them secret paths to get there. That's pretty bad, but um, he is not the architect of the attack on the city, as he is. He's, he's much more of an active collaborator. Now he's under the, the you know, spell of Bottomless Dread and everything in the Book of Lost Tales version, um, but he's still a much more active collaborator, it seems. Um, uh, he's, he's 
active in the sense of he, he does more to help Melko um, than he did in the Silmarillion version. Um, good. Roy says, it's a real betrayal and not just a sign of weakness. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that, that, seems, that seems to me fair. Um, um, and good. Brianna points out how he, he resists Morgoth but is eventually broken um, in the later version, whereas that doesn't really seem to happen here. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, in all these things, he see, you know, Melko is weaker, but so is Meglin. Um, and, and Meglin seems more willing to be more involved in overthrowing him. Now, Idril, as we've said, is a more active character and a stronger character. Know then that Idril had a great power of piercing with her thought the darkness of the hearts of elves and men, and the glooms of the future there too. Further, uh, further even than is the common power of the kindreds of the Eldalier. Therefore she spake thus on a day to Tuor, Know, my husband, that my heart misgives me for doubt of Meglin, and I fear that he will bring an ill on this fair realm, though by no means may I see how or when. Yet I dread, lest all that he knows of our doings and preparations become in some manner known to the foe, so that he devise a new means of whelming us, against which we have no thought, against which we have thought of no defense. Lo, I dreamed on a night that Meglin builded a furnace, and coming at us unawares, flung therein Earendel our babe, and would after thrust in thee and me, but that for sorrow at the death of our fair child I would not resist. And Tuor answered, There is reason for thy fear, for neither is my heart good towards Meglin. Yet he is the nephew of the king and thine own cousin, nor is there charge against him, and I see not to do but to abide and watch. Um... Yes, Idril sees what's going to happen, right? And notice her emphasis. The thing that she fears is not, Melko's going to find out where we are, right? But rather, the foe will devise a new means of whelming us against which we have thought of no defense. As he does, right? It's all about the dragons. If it weren't for those dragons, which Megwin suggested, Gondolin would have stood. The Balrogs and orcs by themselves could not have taken Gondolin. They would have been down around in the valley, and they couldn't have gotten up. They could shoot their flaming arrows. But remember, remember all those arrows that the Gondolindrum have, right? Or the Gondothwim, excuse me, have? You know, they could shoot continuously for years and years on end. Um, uh, and this is what they prepared for. They prepared their city on the hill so that it would be unassailable by an army that came in on the ground so that they could just stand there and pick off any army on the ground as long as they need, right? Um, there, so there has to be some way that Melko can break through and break up on, you know, and get up onto the, onto the, the hill. And that's what, of course, happens. And again, it is, in fact, uh, Meglin's idea. Um, so she fears... Her fears are very concrete, very specific, Right again, we get a general reference to Idril's foreboding in the Silmarillion, but she is uh, much more active, much more knowledgeable, and much more specifically suspicious of Meglin and what he will do, what he might do, and of course what he does do. Um, now, when Meglin actually springs, tell me what you think of uh, the story of Meglin's end here. Now then, Meglin had Idril by the hair, and sought to drag her to the battlements out of cruelty of heart, that she might see the fall of Eärendil to the flames. 
but he was cumbered by that child, and she fought, alone as she was, like a tigress for all her beauty and slenderness. There he now struggles and delays amid oaths, while that folk of the wing, of the wing draw nigh, and lo, Tuor gives a shout so great that the orcs hear it afar, and waver at the sound of it. Like a crash of tempest, the guard of the wing were amid the men of the mole, and these were stricken asunder. When Megwin saw this, he would stab Eärendil with a short knife he had, but that child bit his left hand, that his teeth sank in, and he staggered, and stabbed weakly, and the mail of the small coat turned the blade aside, and thereupon Tuor was upon him, and his wrath was terrible to see. He seized Megwin by that hand that held the knife, and broke the arm with the wrench, and then taking him by the middle, leapt with him upon the walls, and flung him far out. Great was the fall of his body, and it smote Amangwareth three times, ere it pitched in the midmost of the flames, and the name of Meglin has gone out in shame from among Eldar and Noldoli. Um, notice the parallels. Roy, you're right, it is like the fall of Rome. Melko needs help from within. Um, notice it's also, of course, like the fall of Troy, the way you've got the beasts come in and disgorging their orcs. Um, and then, of course, we get the references to Troy and Nineveh and Babylon and Rome at the end of the story. Um, I think that that's no coincidence. Carita, I also love Idril fighting back. If she hadn't been fighting, um, uh, uh, Eärendil would have been thrown off the battlements. Um, if uh, Eärendil had not resisted, you know, he would have been killed. Uh, Idril's pretty cool here. Um, and uh, um, Notice also, I, by, by the way, the other thing that made me bring up Troy, um, I, I think this is a, well, I won't say it, to say it's a reference is a little bit stronger perhaps than I mean it. Um, it is strongly reminiscent, I would say, um, of the death of, of, of Astyanax, the son of Hector, who's thrown off the walls um, after the, the taking of Troy. Um, that... You know, so with Tuor as Hector, you know, sort of in the role of Hector of Troy here, um, you know, except uh, there's no Achilles on the uh, uh, on the on the on the, on the Melko side. But um, anyway, it's it's so it's a, yet another small parallel that makes me think that you know again we're seeing some. Uh, these lingering ideas of these other great uh, sieges and destructions of cities kind of lurking in the background here. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, Arthur's wondering if uh, Gothmog could be an Achilles figure. Well, it's not... I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go that specific, because there's certainly no... I mean, the main reason I said there's no Achilles figure is that if Tuor is the Hector figure, he doesn't die, right? Um, so in that sense, I guess he's kind of living the dream. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, exactly, Tom. A Troy where Hector doesn't die, a Troy where Aeneas doesn't lose his Creusa. Yeah, it's kind of a wish fulfillment thing, isn't it? I mean, it's like... A, but notice, notice, Tom, the other parallel with Troy, right? Just as the, the survivors of Troy go on to, to, to form the civilization of Rome and then from Rome onto England, um, that didn't actually happen, but it's part of the tradition that the 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 English traced their sort of mythic ancestry back to the Trojans um, through Brutus, uh, the descendant of Aeneas. Medieval tradition, but anyway, um, 
so we have the 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 people of Gondolin who is you know the the refugees from Gondolin who escape, and Arendel's gonna you know is gonna rise from among them. You know, there's definitely a. Uh, you know, there's, there's, I think, definitely some, some, some parallels there too. I think we can see the classical, um, uh, uh, you know, precedents here in, in, in Tolkien's mind, um, very, uh, very, very active. And yes, Tom, no Dido to be seen, no Dido anywhere as far as the eye can see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Meglin's destruction, of course. He, uh, you know, on the one hand, we see his, ex- his pretty extraordinary malice, right? Um, and his his desire for revenge against Tuor and against Idril herself, right? You turned me down, now I'm going to make you watch as I kill your child. It doesn't seem like he's trying to take Idril for himself, he just wants to torture her, right? Um, but, uh, but of course also his desire to kill Eärendil, is this connected with the sort of prophecies about Eärendil? Does he get the fact that Eärendil is significant uh, and wants to do Melko a service by offing him? Um, or, or or to further his own ambitions in some sense by offing Eärendil? But yet, notice how his own malice undoes him. Right? If the idea of Melko not being able to create of himself... Um, doesn't go back this far. Is not part of Tolkien's original conception of what the big ev- of what is true of the big evil guy. The fact that oft evil will doth evil mar, um, as is uh, you know, as is is quoted in the Lord of the Rings. Um, that um, that certainly does go back from the beginning. This seems to be one of the original ideas, one of the one of the original sort of motifs of Tolkien's stories. That um, that often evil undoes itself, and we certainly see Meglin as a really good example um, of this. How his own malice undoes him here, and we'll see a bigger example too if we get there. But first, let's talk. We're almost completely out of time, but we have to talk about Turgon, right? Turgon, okay. Um, he does have this one. I'm not going to read this whole passage. This is Meglin arguing against. Um, the 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 sortie right. Um, Tuor and most of the other captains say, "Let's march out on the plain and take on the army out on the plain." Um, and Meglin, his whole plan hinges upon them not doing that. Um, now, I f- my on the one hand, like leaving the walls to go out and fight them on the plain doesn't obviously seem like the best idea to me. But I think with the drakes and dragons, that's sort of the point, is that when they're all pinned up in the city, and the dragons of flame and metal can come in and break through the walls, can A, get up on the hill, B, break through the gates, and and get in, then they can, they can trap everybody in there and kill them more easily. Whereas, the attack of, of Rog and his men shows that when it just comes to open battle and, like, jumping on the back of these dragons and killing the Balrogs and orcs that are there, that actually worked out relatively well. So, um, had they met on the plane, it might have been that they could have, at the very least, done more damage to them. Besides which, remember, that's what Olmo told them to do anyway. Go out and fight them in the field, right? Go out and attack Melko and his armies. Um, so, presumably, 
they would they might have been able to match up that way. Whereas what they viewed as their um, as their you know impregnable fortress on the hill instead becomes a death trap by the contrivances of Meglin uh, and the design of Melko. Um, now, Turgon's weakness. Meglin deliberately plays upon Turgon's weakness for treasure, right? Um, he, uh, he, he, Carita, you're right, he's not obsessed, but it does cause him to hesitate and take bad advice, right? Um, yeah, yeah, so we can see here definitely the anticipation of what we're going to get later, but as before, it is not like in the published Silmarillion, where Turgon is loving too well the works of his own hands, um, and that is his undoing. It's not... It's not, it's not entirely like that yet. So what happens with Turgon, then? If it's not a question of his... Um, you know, his desire for treasure undoing his wisdom, what happens with him? What do we see in Turgon's death? Um, again, I'm sorry to be skipping, but I'm keeping you guys really late tonight. Then said the king, Great is the fall of Gondolin, and men shuddered, for such were the words of Amnon the prophet of old. But Tuor, speaking wildly for Ruth and love of the king, cried, Gondolin stands yet, and Olmo will not suffer it to perish. Now were they at that time standing, Tuor by the trees and the king upon the stairs, as they had stood aforetime when Tuor spake the embassy of Olmo. But Turgon said, Evil have I brought upon the flower of the plain in despite of Olmo, and now he leaveth it to wither in the fire. Lo, hope is no more in my heart for my city of loveliness, but the children of the Noldoli shall not be worsted for ever. Then, then, then did the Gondothlim clash their weapons, for many stood nigh. But Turgon said, Fight not against doom, O my children. Seek ye who may safety in flight, if perhaps there be time yet. But let Tuor have your lealty. But Tuor said, Thou art king. And Turgon made answer, Yet no blow will I strike more. And he cast his crown at the roots of Glingol. Then did Galdor, who stood there, pick it up, but Turgon accepted it not, and bare of head, climbed to the topmost pinnacle of that white tower that stood nigh his palace. There he shouted in a voice like a horn blown among the mountains, and all that were gathered beneath the trees and the foemen in the mists of the square heard him. Great is the victory of the Noldoli! And tis said that it was then middle night, and that the orcs yelled in derision. Now, um... We have to uh, ask yourself, okay, so he despairs. What's going on here? Is Turgon in despair? Fun project. And we don't have time to do it in nearly as much detail as would be fun to do. Compare and contrast Turgon in The Fall of Gondolin and Denethor in Minas Tirith. Um, as James Libach has pointed out, he wrote me an email in which he, he did a really neat analysis um, pointing out how many similarities there are between Minas Tirith and Gondolin. Minas Tirith is very reminiscent of, Go- of Gondolin, even in its description. It looks, uh, it looks like Gondolin. It's not shaped like Gondolin. Um, but many elements of its, of its description are reminiscent of Gondolin, um, including the tower and, and, uh, uh, and, and the, 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 you know, how white and shining it is. And um, notice also 
of course, it's in Minas Tirith. And we got the tree, of course, the tree right before the court of the king. Uh, the tree, which is a seedling of that other great tree that came. And then, uh, and you've got, just to solidify this more, all of those uh, Gondothlim names among the stewards, right? We've got a couple Ecthelians in there. And, in, uh, you know, so it's... Um, uh, th- there seem to be a lot of connections in Tolkien's mind between Minas Tirith. Not to mention that one of the names of Gondolin uh, translates to Minas Tirith, right? That is, it's 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 the Tower of Guard, right? Anyway, um, so this seems further to invite the question. Okay, so Denethor and t- both of them have a, a a king who appears to despair, who says he has no hope, and he goes up and and seems to commit a kind of suicide, right? Uh, he goes down with the ship, as, uh, as, as, as several of you say. Kate was just saying that. Um, and so was Nancy. Um, though Nancy was saying also that it, that it looks pretty heroic. Well, it does look fairly heroic. Um, yeah, is it... How do we understand this, though? Is this heroism? Is it cowardice? Is it despair? Why is he abdicating? Why is he throwing his crown down? What's going on here? Um, let's look at one more passage, which I think, or hope, will help to uh, contextualize it a little bit more. So this is Tuor meeting up with Idril again. And Idril was uh, was just despairing. Um, that she thought the Tuor was dead too. Then said Tuor, Lo, Idril, it is I, and I live. Yet now will I get thy father hence, be it from the hells of Melko. Because she was just expressing that she was really upset about her father dying. With that he would make down the hill alone, maddened by the grief of his wife. But she, coming to her wits in a storm of weeping, clasped his knees, saying, My lord, my lord, and delayed him. Yet even as they spake, a great noise and a yelling, and a yelling rose from that place of anguish. Behold, the tower leapt into a flame, and in a stab of fire it fell, for the dragons crushed the base of it, and all who stood there. Great was the clangor of that terrible fall, and therein passed Turgon, king of the Gondothlim, and for that hour the victory was to Melko. Then said Idril heavily, Sad is the blindness of the wise. But Tuor said, Sad too is the stubbornness of those we love, yet t'was a valiant fault. Then stooping, he lift and kissed her, for she was more to him than all the Gondothlim, but she wept bitterly for her father. Then turned Tuor to the captains, saying, Lo, we must get hence with all speed, lest we be surrounded. And forthwith they moved onward, as swiftly as they might, and got them far from thence, ere the orcs tired of sacking the palace, and rejoicing at the fall of the Tower of Turgon. Okay. How do we interpret Turgon's final actions? Despair, madness, cowardice, or heroism? Which is it? Now, I wanted to read this passage because we get in this conversation, especially there in paragraph 2, the conversation between Idril and Tuor commentary, right? She says, Sad is the blindness of the wise. Seems kind of harsh. What does she mean? Is she referring to Turgon's actions to retreat up into his tower? Is she referring further back to him not heeding the the message of Olmo? Which seems quite possible. Quite likely, I would say. Tuor resists her, though, 
sad two or not I mean sad two implies like yeah you're right sad is the blindness of the wise but sad too is the stubbornness of those we love so Turgon was stubborn yet twas a valiant fault he says in what sense was what Turgon did a valiant fault well notice what happens what is the result of Turgon's actions the result of Turgon's actions is to allow the rest of the people to escape. The fact is, the escape of the refugees from Gondolin happens because all of the invading army is focused on the tower and the fall of the tower. Um, they get far from thence ere the orcs tired of sacking the palace and rejoicing at the fall of the Tower of Turgon. Um, why is now? Let's go back to the previous passage here. Why is if he's despairing? Why does he? Why is he shouting? Great is the victory of the Noldoli in a great voice from the top of the tower. Possibly to encourage the orcs to yell in derision, to get the atten- to draw the attention of everybody else. Notice what he says here: "Fight not against doom." This is what sounds very Denethor-like, right? Um, uh, you know, when Denethor is in despair. Um, Fight not against doom, O my children. That doesn't mean he's saying, give up and die. We're all going to die. Go and die in what way seems best to you. He doesn't... He's not talking like that. Fight not against doom. Don't defend the city. Don't defend me. Instead, seek ye who may safety in flight, if perhaps there be time. Don't fight. Run. The doom that they shouldn't fight against is the fall of Gondolin. Gondolin cannot be defended. It's done. Gondolin has fallen. It is the doom of Gondolin to fall. Don't throw your lives away trying to resist that. Run. Flee. Go with Tuor. Go with Tuor and leave the city as many of you escape alive as possibly can. Let Tuor have your loyalty. Right? Let Tuor lead you out. Loyalty just means loyalty. Tuor says, no, 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 you're king. I will strike no blow more. Why? Because he's giving up? Because he's in despair? He is in despair. He does have no hope that Gondolin can be saved, and that despair is quite rational and well-founded. But what does he do? He climbs to the topmost pinnacle and shouts, great is the victory of the Noldoli among the, the foemen gathered in the midst of the square. Again, to draw their attention. He says, go, run, and then goes up and draws all their attention to himself. And then, indeed, all of the dragons and the, you know, the, the fire drakes and the balrogs and the orcs are all gathered around the tower um, because they're destroying the king, right? This is a big deal. This is a big opportunity. <laughs> Brianna summarizes, uh, or paraphrases, Turgon's phrase, or Turgon's speech by saying, uh, fly, you fools. Yes. Yes. Ooh, Carita, I love it. Carita's pointing out how he ascends bareheaded like his daughter. Yes, but he's only bareheaded in this final moment, right? Is that a, you know, do we see that in some sense as a reference to sort of like now he, he sort of, now he's getting with the Idril program, right? If only he'd listened and been like Idril sooner. Love that. Love that, Carita. As a sign of humility, uh, I'm totally into that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Tom Hillman points out that Aeneas too had to be compelled to leave Troy. Uh, yeah, if we're seeing sort of two wars like uh, Hector and Aeneas rolled into one here, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Notice the other thing that he does is basically uh, uh, force the hand of Tuor, right? Um, no, I, I will not lead you. I will not run away. Instead, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go down with the ship. I'm going to uh, draw them all to me and give you guys time to escape. But by going up and shouting, he also, you know, it, they've got to choose right then whether they're going to run or I'll just die. Right, because they're about to be overwhelmed. Um, so, in a sense, it's almost like he uh, he he sort of encourages them to uh, to flee, or makes it necessary for them to flee. Um, so, I, I the more I look at this passage, the, it, when I first reread this again, you know, recently as I was preparing, my first impression was negative. I was like, "Wow, Turkin despairs more than I remembered," and I was thinking very Denethor-like thoughts. But the more I've thought about it, and the more I, I, the more carefully I read it, the less it seems that way to me, and the more it seems that Turgon's end is in fact a valiant end, and he is still at fault. He was wise but blinded, but again, the blindness was in not accepting Olmo's initial counsel. He should have marched out to attack Melko. Um, you know, he's like, remember we talked about the time it seemed totally reasonable, right? Why should I march out and attack Melko when I could just stay in my impregnable fortress, right? Well, now you can say to Turgon, how's that working out for you, right? So clearly, in retrospect, yeah, okay, Mark, certainly marching out to battle couldn't have ended worse, right? So, um, you know, at the very least, you could have better disposed of your wives and children that way, but anyway, um, so clearly he was wise but blinded, um, uh, and Tuor says, sad too, is the stubbornness of those we love, um, his stubbornness not to come with them, right? His insi- but that's a stubbornness. That's a good stubbornness. Twas a valiant fault, right? Um, he was stubborn in good cause. Um, uh, so I, I do think, in the end, that we are supposed to see Turgon's death as heroic. Um, okay, last point, and this actually is my last slide, though I've cheated by keeping you after long here. Um, but um, can't pass over the appearance of Legolas Greenleaf, right? <clears throat> but the others, led by, uh, uh, led on by one Legolas Greenleaf of the House of the Tree, who knew all that plain by day or by dark, and was night-sighted, made such speed over the vale for all their weariness, and halted only after a great march. Then was all the earth spread with the gray light of that sad dawn, which looked no more on the beauty of Gondolin, but the plain was full of mists, and that was a marvel, for no mist or fog came there ever before, and this, perchance, had to do with the doom of the Fountain of the King. And they rose, and covered by the vapors, fared long past dawn in safety, till they were already too far away for any to descry them in those misty airs from the hill or from the ruined walls." Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so no, we see Legolas, he surfs on nothing, uh, and defies no gravity, um, but, uh, but he does have excellent vision. Um, first of all, notice the mists, right? The mists that have been caused by the fire drakes, um, uh, burning in the, in, in, in the fountains, um, 
notice the sort of the dual sense of this on the one hand again it's like the malice of the enemy undoing itself if it hadn't been for the flames of the fire drakes uh, there wouldn't be this fog but it's also like Olmo hasn't quite forgotten them right and the the mist has risen up from the waters and is cloaking their escape um, that so that seems also to sort of uh, uh, to sort of factor in here too yeah Brianna isn't it fascinating that Gimli and Legolas are both of the names are introduced in the Book of Austales Part Two, um, and now there's a there's a if you want to stump your friends, there's a good trivia question, right? Um, what are the first two of the of the uh, you know the of all of the names of the Fellowship of the Ring? Which two have the oldest names? Whose names go back furthest? Legolas and Gimli. Um, Gimli, of course, was a an old Noldo with really excellent hearing, but uh, and not a dwarf at all. But that's beside the point. Um, but Legolas Greenleaf. I mean, you're right. Uh, you know, Nancy. Yes, this is just a recycled name. But notice he's not just recycled the name; he's recycled the the eyesight too. Um, Legolas has really sharp eyes, um, as uh, becomes increasingly emphasized as you go through the two towers. Um, again, this is just. I would just say another example of Tolkien's retentiveness, right? He likes this character, Legolas Greenleaf, and he's he's going to use him again, right? He comes back. That's why Gorfindel comes back in The Fellowship of the Ring. And yes, the reintroduction of Gorfindel predates Tolkien's explanation of that. Um, remember, when The Fellowship of the Ring is published, The Silmarillion has never been published. It may never be published. Um, he takes Gorfind- He takes golden-haired Gorfindel and gives him a role in the Fellowship of the Ring, because he really likes Gorfindel, right? But then, later on, he invents a story to have it... Actually, it's the same Gorfindel who has come back. Um, And he's particularly associated with Elrond because Gorfindel was particularly attached to Tuor and Idril and their son Eärendil, so he's come back to, like, look over... You know, to, like, continue to watch over the family. Um, That... um, that's that's the case. No, that's not the case with Legolas Yana. Um, in this in this situation, we don't have. It's not the same Legolas. Um, that is merely the case of Tolkien, the author, recycling one of his earlier ideas and characters that has since dropped out um, of the story. Um, but uh, but again, we see Tolkien doing this all the time. We're going to come back to this point again next week when we look at the Nauglofring. It is time, finally, for me to let you guys go. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, the Nauglofring next time, and we will definitely be thinking about this question of recycling of Elvish characters uh, when we look at that story uh, next time. So uh, I will let you guys go. Thank you for uh, bearing with me. Uh, m- so many of you have stayed through my extra-long class here tonight. Uh, uh, thank you for your forbearance uh, and... Uh, uh, and uh, we got we got through. I mean, there's much more that we could talk about, but we got through everything that I had in mind. Um, next week, the, the Nuglofring. We're only doing. We've done two weeks on. You know, we did two weeks on Tenuviel, two on Turambar, and two on Gondwan. We're only going to do one week on the Nuglofring. So, so read all of the story of the the Nuglofring and its commentary. It's a great deal shorter than the fall of Gondolin. Uh and we'll talk about that whole thing next week, and then we'll move on to Eärendil. 
uh, after that, the week after that. So thanks, everybody. Don't forget, next Monday evening, Mike Drought's uh, lecture. Definitely plan to be there. Uh, And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.